The study of television covers a wide range of different processes, from production, technologies of broadcast and circulation, to audience experience and involvement. There is no doubt that the streaming platforms and portals of recent years have had and continue to have a profound impact on the patterns of consumption of televisual media content. How much things have changed is always a contested point of view as media adjust and change in all sorts of significant ways. Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Geo Media Research Centre at Karlstad University in Sweden. My name is John Lynch and today I talk with Professor Annette Hill of Lund University about these issues and about our shared interest in mapping out this complex interplay between producers and audience that is at work in this important area of communication. Welcome, Annette. Uh, thank you for coming on to the podcast today. It's going to be interesting to talk uh, about our, our shared interest around uh, television and television studies. I'd like to start with uh, a question, I suppose, of technology in a way. And in what ways do you think uh, streaming, the streaming portals, the platforms, uh, have changed the nature both of people's habits of consumption, but also in any ways in which we can see how it changes the, the, the nature of, 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 of what we watch, the, 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 the television uh, product itself? Mm, good question. And thank you so much for inviting me onto this podcast. Um, streaming, it's, I think, you know, there's, I guess there's at least two things I would say about it. I mean, the first is that I try to think about streaming television and sort of broadcast or older forms of television working side by side. So definitely kind of I'm always thinking about the old and the new and its impact on television and its kind of content and storytelling. And then also the kind of cultures of viewing around streaming and sort of broadcast um, television. So I try to think always about the old and the new, and we kind of see that in a lot of different developments, the old and the new working with reality television. So the old the old way of television, uh, reality television, would definitely take us back to its origin story of the in the 80s with crime. And we see a kind of resurgence of that. You know, the, the, the classic reality show is the crime reality show. And that comes through on, um, on television. You know, we see it on, on, um, on, on shows which we'll find on Netflix, but nevertheless have been kind of commissioned and, and made in a classic way not too dissimilar from that kind of 80s style of sort of see it happen, crime reality TV. And then we see that migrating over, right, to podcasts, YouTubers with true crime being a really trending genre at the moment um, and true crime comedy being a trending genre for podcasting or YouTubers because of that kind of genre mix. But it's got echoes of that older generic form and that older style of storytelling and, and cultures of viewing which carried over now into listening to the podcast or watching it through Netflix or um, watching the YouTuber. So the old and the new always kind of really fascinates me. That's the first thing I'd say, John. <laughs> Absolutely. I think uh, within media studies, we're always tracking that relationship between um, and, you know, on the one hand, being careful to not overstate too much uh, changes in that way. But I wonder if with streaming, um, both in terms of how it organises production in a different way, uh, which is one of the things I've, I've been interested in looking at because um, the, if we call it the Netflix model, although of course there are other many different platforms in different ways and they all, I think, have their own unique sort of way of working. HBO operates, I think, differently and so on. Um, but if we go back to the Netflix and the House of Cards as the first series, then where they, where they brought in David Fincher, and this, this was when there was the shift sideways in a major way from Hollywood talent as such. And it's like, you know, here's a hundred million dollars guaranteed to seasons, uh, big name director given full 
creative control. I suppose my my perception is that whilst, of course, much of, of what was produced carried on in exactly the same way, this this opened up a new um, a new opportunity. I suppose. Do you think that has changed? Uh, and that this question, I suppose, of freedom for creatives in that sense has that has that changed in in your view? Well, I think you've 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 explored that a lot more than me in your work, but absolutely. Um, you know, I think uh, it's 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 opened up a kind of um, d- a different kind of power place for showrunners, hasn't it, and for writers for sure. Um, but nevertheless, I'm, I'm a little. I mean, and I guess I, I'd want to know what you think. But it, it, the the rhetoric of Netflix, its kind of power rhetoric, does feel to me decidedly fishy. Um, and you know how how much freedom then some showrunners are given compared to others, um, and we see quite a lot of flops and disasters as a kind of result of that too, don't we? So it's an interesting one. I mean, I, you know that I'm absolutely crazy about the television series Utopia that ran for two seasons, um, and if I compare Utopia on a certain budget with a certain you know director and, and, and writer involved in it for Channel Four in the classic model. And that classic model of broadcast television helped kill that show because it didn't reach a wider transnational audience, which was measured. So then it was cut because it was seen as um, having too small an audience. And then if we look at the streaming giant Amazon adapting it with a with a very famous, you know, Gillian Flynn is a famous showrunner, writer. And what a disaster that was, uh, you know, which has only managed one season. Um, and then we kind of say, well, bigger budget, you know, bigger stars, um, bigger freedom, and yet actually not an ounce of the sort of creativity that we saw in the original version. So it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think in some cases it's incredible, the, the sort of creative storytelling. But I mean, what do, you, what do you think? What do you think to that kind of rhetoric of Netflix and its kind of creative vision compared to the realities? I certainly think yes. I mean, to be wary of of Netflix, um, as you say, their their rhetoric and their, their the way in which they they push those things. In one sense, I think my perception, for instance, of, of Netflix is that they have firstly they have a huge amount of of material. Their output is enormous. Um, so in that sense, there's a lot more being produced. Um, but I, I generally find that they, things, uh, that the work that they produce is, is a fairly consistent level. And Mm -hmm. I don't see it as particularly exceptional in, in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the, the, the dynamics of, I mean, you, you've certainly had more experience in terms of, of, of observing and, um, um, analyzing the sort of production culture and things and I and, and at the end of the day uh, with with some you know in a place I don't know channel four in, in any um, sort of intimate sense but you know you if you have a, a a very good commissioning editor in a place like that perhaps you can do just as good if if not better work than 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 somewhere else mm. so you know it's a complex ecosystem isn't it, it production in that sense and if uh, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, Hill Street Blues got made in the in the early '80s uh, on the old model, and again, creative moments in all sorts of ways. So, uh, yeah, I think I think I think that's uh, useful. Mm. I, I do. I read when I read interviews with showrunners, for instance, you know, and I look at the the the, the programs that the, the series that I was uh, looking at. They, but they, they all do comment on with something like um, uh, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the, the series I was interested in. They, the, the freedom they get to, um, um, uh, with something like the leftovers, you know, the, 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 the sort of trust in that series to allow it to, to run all the way through. Um, with that, with that showrunner, um, I think it's exactly what you say. Perhaps Channel Four may, or, or another broadcaster in the traditional sense, may be good to initiate that. But it 
there is the harshness of of audience numbers and uh, presumably with Channel 4 advertising as the as the funding basis for that. So, yeah, the subscription model seems to me uh, and the streaming platforms in that sense, I, I, I think, um, and HBO, I think, uh, and others in America, I think we you know. Yeah, there's been some good, some very, I don't know, I, I suppose my argument would be that in general, perhaps there's just a lot more of fairly average material. But I do think the opportunities for the exceptions um, and most importantly for with something like uh, the serial format, which again was what I was focusing on, the, um, you know, the, 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 a show that you, you talked about, Utopia, my, my show, the show that perhaps broke my heart that ended was Carnivale. Um, and, you know, it would have been great if, if that had been five years later, even maybe to see that for another two seasons to, to fulfill its sort of uh, um, projected arc, story arc, etc. So yeah. I think, you know, shifting from the necessity for numbers and the role of executives in the broadcast model perhaps allows something, something to, to happen. Completely. And, and, and I mean, you're, you're right on there. And, and I just want to say apologies. My, my dog, Oscar, who's 45 kilos, is huffing and puffing around and having a drink and generally making sounds in the background. So if you hear him, it's Oscar joining us in this podcast. Um, I mean, I, I hear you. And and like I'm, you know, of course, what what motivates me to subscribe? Right. You know, and um, Netflix or HBO don't necessarily have to reveal how many subscribers they've got. So that's an interesting one that gives them a little bit more rhetorical power, doesn't it? Because they don't have have to keep checking themselves against these performance metrics that the other um, broadcasters do. But but they appeal to me as a subscriber, you know, on on the basis of talent, right? And I would pay just, you know, something per month for anything that Richard Price did. You know, like I'm just the biggest fan of his novels. Um, if he's anything involved in writing anything on television, like The Wire, for example, you know, I, I'm going to pay. I would pay money to have that. And, you know, he was the showrunner for The Night Of, which is, I think, one of the, you know, standout, incredible series ever. You know, so and and and, and if and if I got a kind of a, you know, a ping, um, a push notification saying, would, how much would you pay per month to have Richard Price? And that would somehow, you know, crowdsource him to do another, to be showrunner for another series and write another novel, I would do it, right? Because I'm just like, I just think he's a genius. Um, so, and that's that's very different, isn't it? That's an incredibly different setup um, where, you know, um, uh, kind of niche tastes and talent and audiences and fans and producers can all sort of com have a conversation together, if you see what I mean, about what might happen. So that's kind of exciting. I mean, there isn't a Richard Price streaming um, service, but if there was, I would, I would be leading it and, and pushing it. Are you a fan of Richard Price? Uh, um, no, not, not, I haven't, um, I wouldn't say I was uh, particularly aware of, of everything that he'd done. Mm. Um, what's so, his primary output? What was, what's the, well, you say he was a writer on the wire, was he? So he's a, he's a novelist um, mm. and he did, he wrote many novels from the seventies onwards. Um, but the, probably one of his most famous ones is Clockers, mm. the, uh, the novel Clockers, which is. That was made into a film, wasn't it? Made into a film, Spike Lee film. And yes. then, um, was the, the inspiration for The Wire completely the inspiration for The Wire. And if you read Clockers, you, you, you basically can see The Wire unfolding. And, and of course, the, the creative the creatives in The Wire recognise that and brought Price in as one of, along with Dennis Lehane. So, they, you know, they, they often, uh, George Pedicano, so they were using some of those kind of established crime writers. But Richard Price is, is, is an absolute genius storyteller. Um, and one of like, for example, you'll recognize one of his things now used by everybody. So right from the beginning, Richard Price will often have some 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 small medical problem, which becomes a kind of metaphor for the character. So I'm reading Clockers, which I've, I've never read. Right. So, you know, it's like a novel that I've always wanted to read. And now I'm kind of reading it. And it's one of the, the lead the lead characters is a kind of 17 year old. Um, guy working working the streets, pushing drugs, you know, trying to make his way up, 
up the kind of political, um, you know, um, internal dynamics of, of gang, gang life. And he's got a terrible stomach ulcer, you know, and he's so young and yet the stress of everything. And, you know, he's got this awful stomach ulcer. He's always drinking yoo-hoo drinks. You know, he's always worrying about the ulcer flares up whenever he's in some situation where he's not sure. And that is a classic Richard Price kind of thing that you see. And, and you see it in the night of, for example, John Turturro. What does John Turturro have? He's got terrible eczema, terrible problems with his feet. And he wears sandals with these open, open toes where he's got these terrible burning feet, you know, which kind of become linked to his kind of, you know, fight for injustice and so on and so forth. You know, so uh, he's just a, a, a genius storyteller and you can kind of see it visually in how he, 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 he handles sort of television storytelling and you can see it in his novels. And I think he's been a major influence on, on anyone. So yes, streaming would give me the option to be a fan who was, who was paying, <laughs> paying for more Richard Price work. Um, but, but can we go to the word streaming for a moment? I'm curious to see what you think about that. Um, I've been working recently on uh, audiences in um, Malaysia and Indonesia who are um, t telling me in the interviews with the team I'm working with about how they imagine platform television, like how they imagine entertainment um, content co coming through streaming, streaming platforms, which have become major players in these regions, Southeast Asia. Um, and I mean, one of the first things that we just sort of discover in the interviews is that the notion of streaming just just isn't what they're doing. So um, they don't go with the they're not going with the flow of Netflix, you know, sort of streaming along and with Netflix in control of the current, if you like. Um, they 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 uh, they crisscross between lots of different platforms. So and 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 so the the, the very word the metaphor of streaming which you know and I know fits with other metaphors in television studies like flow. And I feel that is a, um, you know, a rhetorical device being used by these platforms to, dis to, to, to make it feel as if once they've got their subscriber or their kind of their, their audience member, they're going with the flow of this streaming content. But that's not how people do it. They jump about, right? Every day they're jumping backwards and forwards and crisscrossing you know, different types of content from, from you know, gaming platforms and, and, and YouTube and, 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 and legal piracy platforms, sometimes to Netflix when they're watching, when, you know, when they're eating their dinner, back out to some other kind of platforms. And it's an interesting one for me that audiences don't flow across these um, sort of, you know, sort of um, platforms at the moment. So what do you think is happening? I think I think the, the the phrase streaming, as you say, is very interesting. And I think uh, I think back to the quote from uh, Sarandos at Netflix, where he says, "You know, our, our biggest problem is that people need to sleep." You know, so I think I think it's their vision that we we plug into their stream and we don't leave. And uh, uh, as you say, it's a kind of rhetorical, partly a rhetorical sort of affordance in the way in which they design the the next episode buttons and algorithms and all the rest of it so i think yes there's an entire sort of architecture that they are pushing um uh, in that way i suppose that my observation in terms of what you say there really is that um certainly people if people are switching between different platforms uh, and that could include gaming as well as um, and other in one sense that to me would still maintain the principle that they are streaming. I mean, you know, the, the, the breadth of this, this, you know, the metaphor, the, this stream has multiple currents within it, but they're moving constantly from one to the other. If you would say, well, they're taking time out of that. They only watch Netflix for one hour a day in a more sort of conventional way that in the past, I would say, well, then they, they, they're clearly stepping outside of that. But that's exactly that's what, what I mean. That's exactly what's happening. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Okay. So they're so, definitely not streaming. They're not right. flowing. They're not streaming. There aren't currents. Mm. It's paths. You know, sometimes they're on the on the you know the, the big highway mm. of Netflix, but other times they're on TikTok. 
pathways and they're definitely exiting out exiting in exit they're not in a stream definitely in malaysia and indonesia so yeah are they but they moving from one stream to another are they moving from say netflix or television type thing to tiktok or facebook and then is their overall usage still quite high in that sense of of sort of media content that's because if you think about facebook facebook in one sense is as you could say is a stream it's it's updating and uh, and so on um social media i suppose is could could be this uh, functions in streaming uh, streaming model mm. um yeah yeah youtubers and um mm. all the different kind of gaming platforms definitely but they're that but it's not like they leave them on so they're no, exiting no. in and out definitely i, I think I, I i that would fit i think even with my experience in sweden you know mm. people people still um although maybe it's uh, you know there would be be interesting to see generationally uh, one of the things I've, I've I've been interested to to look at in Sweden, I haven't, haven't been successful in persuading anyone to fund it yet. But the difference between you know young people and their viewing habits and and uh, an older generation, which is you know still within Sweden, the whatever it is the the evening news is still very important, and and people's radio use is still uh, quite habitual in that way. But I wonder if if that's quite different for a for a younger generation who is not tied into that um yeah i mean the 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 terrain as such i think is uh, a it's 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 not as uniform and it's not as unidirectional as as these uh, media companies um as you say i think it's 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 useful to say describe it as a rhetorical thing they're constantly um uh, seeking to shape the very sort of perception and language of 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 what people are doing as well as the content in that way mm-hmm. i suppose that's why in the in, in the book uh, i i i talk a lot about habit in that sense because i think that that notion of habit is is uh, sort of been absolutely sort of uh, uh, become priority for them and they they understand that that dynamic and whether there's any possibilities uh, within that um, but overall, do you think streaming has, I mean, to, to what extent do you think, I just wonder on, on a basic level in terms of streaming, are people watching more? The, the ability to be able to watch on your smartphone anyway, you know, we've moved away from the television set onto multiple devices now. Um, and there just seems to me to be a sort of qualitative a quantitative, sorry, quantitative sort of increase in terms of, of people's engagement. I know they're making a lot more and they want you to view it, but people seem to be spending more and more in that sense, more and more time and engagement. So do you think it's changing? Because you must have done much work over the years in terms of people's patterns of consumption. Has, has, that, has that had an impact on that, do you think? Mm, I mean, we'd need to kind of refer to some some of the kind of more quantitative studies that are kind of measuring time use so you know there there are there are some coming out during covid where of course we're we're going to see that across the board and i i wonder then if we're going to see a, a drop um you know in in this kind of time we're managing where we have covid but we're out again more often we don't have so many movement restriction orders um mm-hmm. Uh, whether we're going to see a massive drop in that and a, and a, a ter- you know, a, a switching off um, from the devices. So yeah, um, uh, y- you, your instincts are right. Of course, um, there's, there's, there, there was a, an uptick before COVID where just so much more amazing content or crap content, <laughs> diverting content, um, mixed media content. We're seeing a massive uptick there. And if you if you look at the kind of new genre of um, reaction media, so that's um, people, you know, um, watching other people watching mm. television. That's massively driven up. That's you know a, a new genre connecting to older genres. We know about you know um, live appreciation of something you know, as it's kind of unfolding in front of them, um, often done by comedians, but, you know, <laughs> other types of kind of um, 
influencers now, you know, we, we see that. And that was rising before COVID. And then it just exploded, of course, in COVID, because if you're, you've got um, movement restriction and you want to get that social feeling, then you're going to be tapping into reaction media, um, people watching other TV series, uh, Game of Thrones or other kind of films, bad films, good films, and doing reaction media. And, I mean, now we see... So why, why do you think why do you think reaction media has become? To, I mean, it's not something that I sort of engage with in, in my own sort of leisure time, but uh, I'm aware, for instance, of you know the, the the Swedish star who's doing with the computer games, and I mean, what is the fascination with watching others watching? Do you think what is that process about? That, I mean, there's a sort of uh, is it? Is it? There must be something I think about connecting with with the notion of a human in a way. You know, we we we're programmed, you know, to 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 try to detect those. I suppose it goes to perhaps some of the things you've done around affect in a way. I mean, watching people's reactions is a way of connecting with another human, even through mediated technologies. Mm. Um, yeah, very- I suppose it's a shared world. You know, if you know the world. Game of Thrones, for instance, then I don't know, there must be some kind of circuit made there that's uh, uh, rewarding, I suppose. Mm, mm, Yeah, that's a perceptive point to make, definitely. It's constituting an audience, isn't it? Mm. So so you constitute yourself as an audience of, of one. If you're a, um, a YouTuber reacting to music videos, for example, um, or you and you constitute a, another um, bigger audience who then watch you reacting to these particular, um, you know, um, videos or podcasting. There's lots of reaction media, the genre for podcasting, isn't there? Um, Mm -hmm. And from, I mean, I, you know, I'm a big fan of my dad wrote a porno and that's reaction media, right. Um, In a, in a very classical sense. Uh, And then there are the kind of other examples where where there are podcasts where people will kind of rewatch a bad movie, um, and it's it's so it's a it's it's a double constitution of the audience. There's the audience reacting to the the the, the content, um, it's usually done with comedy, but not always. Sometimes done in, in a in a deeper, more more um, political way as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and then there's the audience following these now audiences performing themselves as audiences, and they constitute themselves in a different way. So I think it's constituting, you know, um, audiencehood. And that becomes a very deeply reflexive, interesting thing. And then what we also get with it, with reaction media, is a deconstruction of genre. Because in order to react and perform as an audience towards a a music video or a a badly written porn, amateur porn, um, you know, sort of novel, um, or a bad movie or or an 80s movie or whatever, you know, you're having to deconstruct the genre. Um, and that's what's sort of going on there too. So I think that's a kind of interesting, um, interesting sort of different side of audiencehood where we're getting genre knowledge displayed and performed through the the, the reaction performers and then through the audiences. Um, so I mean, I think all those things are happening. Definitely, um, I mean, the two the two biggest influences on this back in time would be reality television because. Reality television is very much about reaction. It's, it's a trope in, in the talent show, for example. It's a big mm-hmm. trope to see the reactions of people performing in front of them. Um, and then particularly kind of Asian reality television built that into the actual format. So you would have a panel of, you know, somebody's father and auntie and an expert dating, you know, um, person reacting to somebody on a reality dating show and you'd have them in a, in a little box, you know, sort of within the format, right? So, so, so sort of Asian reality television got in on that act in the sort of 90s, really, so very early on. And now we see it everywhere. I mean, um, it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a new genre, but it's sort of come mm. from, from, you know, um, this, this kind of interest in the performance of audiencehood. Uh, you know, and then sort of deconstructing a genre, um, which I think is kind of super interesting. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've, we've done interviews with millennials and Gen Z where s- some of them are saying, I can't stand it, don't want to have the live commenting. 
you know, while I'm watching something and other people go, I can't actually watch anything now without live commenting. So they, they look for watching a TV series or a film where there is live commenting going on by fans mm. and watch doubly watch it, right? So you're deeply immersed in two different things. You're immersed in the storytelling and you're immersed in the performance of audiencehood for the storytelling. So it's a little bit like, I guess, if you, you go to the theatre and you end up half in the play and half watching everybody around you as they're reacting to the play or stand-up comedy, right? That would be a really good you know, one to sort of, it's a little bit, even more that, isn't it? Where you, you're then heckling and, you know, you're, you're, you're part of the performance on stage, if you see what I mean. And we, we literally have interviews with people who so say, it's ruined me now. I cannot watch something without, my own reaction isn't enough. I now need to be constituted with a wider group online who are then, you know, live commenting on something. So, yeah. And <laughs> no surprise to me that comedians tend to be doing very well as stars in reaction media because thinking it through now with you, stand-up comedy is the training ground, isn't it? You know, that have had five, 10 years of stand-up comedy training um, where they know how to do live reactions and how to handle all of that in a quite performative, entertaining way. So, yeah, it's very, very fascinating. And that only comes, of course, from the new landscape of television, right? We couldn't have it otherwise. No, no. Um, is that a, but is that a, dis, should we say like a dispersal of concentration, this, this, because it's certainly a kind of, you're, to, to multitask in that way is going to absorb your entire attentional range. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, one, ruining, it's ruining their attention. Yes. So, I mean, is it, what are some, what what are the kind of consequences of that? Anyway, it's in the way sometimes you you, know, you see certain certain comedians. You say in terms of stand up, and they do a show, and then you know, and someone will shout out and say, and, and and certain well established, shall we say, comedians will say, hang on a minute, you know, this is my show. You know, actually, just sit down, calm down, and 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 people's uh, expectation to be able to just you know interrupt this flow and be part of this. Um, Mm. But I, I just I wonder as well in terms of 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 because I think you know the the work that I've just done for instance was was driven by an idea of thinking and thought and the idea that um, uh, central to a certain notion of kind of an, an artwork is is a, a, a space of reflection in a way. Um, so I just wonder if, if in one sense, what that maps onto is just an increasingly sort of, uh, well, all-encompassing attentional regime and a reduction then in, if it's responsive and endlessly, um, the, you know, that, is, that does map, doesn't it, to various to sort of uh, neurological dopamine hits that's addictive and things. Um, but is, is, the, is that to, to a negative sort of, uh, sort of uh description on, on my part do you think or no I mean I think we're going to see organically it going in in several directions so there's going to be some people who will do interviews with um and they're definitely kind of saying it's ruined my attention you know I, I now need to see other people reacting to through these kind of live commenting to be able to enjoy a film or a tv series um, or a reality show and they're definitely commenting on it having a really negative impact on their attention span and their ability to understand the, the aesthetics and the storytelling, for example. They're, they're, what, they're, they're much more interested in the performance of the audiences around that um, and relying on that person to be a guide to the details of the, 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 of the content themselves. And then we get others who are watching twice. So also then it, it, it taps into, um, you know, um, um, sort of you know um repeat watching review cultures so you can watch it immersed on your own and then join it some fans for a kind of a live commenting session on that same piece that you know very well um which is why kind of cult film mm. cult bad films do very well in sort of reaction media because people have seen them 50 times and yeah. then they kind of go in to sort of enjoy the kind of the live commenting and reactions to it. But yeah, we're seeing kind of both of those. Um, mm. Definitely. Yeah. So there is, 
there is in one sense that it can facilitate a certain kind of deeper engagement um, with with uh, with something. So yeah, yeah. I mean, if we take uh, we take Friends as the example, right? Friends is, you know, um, <laughs> I did this this study last year for Samsung Nordics, which was on. Uh, f- f- sort of trans transnational study of four Nordic countries and, and millennials and Gen Zs around television, um, and I haven't sort of written that up yet into into sort of publications. But um, you know, what did we find was everybody everybody is rewatching Friends. You know, still still absolutely huge, especially during COVID. Very you know mood work, very important television mood work. Friends. Um, you know, in, in, we started to call it don't fuck with friends because just everybody loves it, even though they know there's 20 different things they could critique about it now. Um, still, it was like, don't fuck with friends. This is, you know, we're, we're going to rewatch, rewatch, rewatch. It's, it's important mood work. They could go in, you know, 18 year olds can pop into almost any episode of Friends and they've seen it 55 times already. So live commenting, reaction media around Friends is just another way of kind of enjoying the mood work of Friends um, with a kind of group of equally excited kind of um, Friends fans. And it never ceases to amaze me that, that you know, you, any interview I'll be doing with, with um, Gen Z or millennials at the moment, any interview, I won't even be asking about it. It won't even be about Friends and Friends will come up. It's just like, what? is going on Um, and and that's so it's an interesting comfort television it's an interesting like I said the classic television as mood work um, Mm. but also live commenting and sort of live sort of you know reaction media around it is precisely aimed at people who've seen it re-watched it Mm. Um, so then you don't have to have your attention fully on the on the actual kind of sitcom you can be kind of riffing around the themes or the the particular kind of personalities and characters. So trying to get your head around the continuing rewatch culture for friends is a is a fascinating one as an audience scholar because it, it it's not going away. Mm. No doubt about it. I mean, my nephew, who I haven't seen, you know, in a long time because of COVID and and he, so he's grown up, you know, he went from eleven to thirteen, you know, uh, the last few years. And uh what what, what are you watching? Oh friends, friends. <laughs> <laughs> So it's it's very very fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. Why do you think there's this enduring interest in rewatch culture and friends? Um, it's it's a bit like comfort food, I suppose, in a way. I mean, it's uh, there's nothing disturbing or challenging about it, which isn't a criticism in any sense. Um, uh, it's produced to an incredibly high standard. I mean, it, you know, in terms of quality, it's just, uh, I think it uh, works very well in that way. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, all I, that's all I could kind of observe on it, really. Um, I think, I suppose it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's safe. Um, and, uh, you know, I've certainly myself enjoyed many episodes and hours with it over the years. I wouldn't say I rewatch it now. Um, but um, it, it, it's, it's open to that sort of kind of engagement, isn't it? Um, uh, and I think it has a sociality to it sort of built into, into what it is that, that, that you then sort of plug into, you match into that, that sort of, cause it's about sociality. It's about the dynamics of a group um, within this fairly, fairly um, contained way. But um, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's good. Um, in terms of that idea then going to perhaps again, and, and, and nothing in terms of sort of uh, uh, values value judgment but going to the other end of the spectrum perhaps with you know new drama uh, and I know that you've that you've written about for instance the bridge and, and and other series in that way those so so I'd like to just talk a little bit about th- that format then because I think again one of the things that I've sort of I would say I've observed and and and, and talked about then is um as I say, what with, with this funding production model of 
funding entire seasons and even multiple seasons ahead, a commitment to that. And, and, and then uh, both allowing creators, as we talked about, to then write with confidence uh, that things later on will come together and the audience maybe after, uh, even after the end of a season will, will, will come back. Um, but it does, it also puts uh, the, um, puts uh, a level of work on the consumer in that sense that uh, uh, this, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a jigsaw puzzle that you will be able to uh, put together later on. Do you think there's been, um, um, do you think the serial format has, uh, has reached a, uh, a much higher level of um, artistry and sophistication uh, and, you know, um, and very much, I think in, Again, some certain shows that um, fundamentally revolve around sort of moral questions and ethical questions, and in that sense, uh, the complexity of working through those things. Do you think that's evident in in some new uh, serial uh, mm. dramas? Yeah, definitely. I absolutely agree with you, spot on. Um, I think that it's an incredibly exciting time as a as a viewer. Uh, to be able to kind of really deeply engage with complex storylines and, and really sort of nuanced character development and incredible cinematography and, and sound. The sound design now um, is just stunning for, for so many sort of series. So, I mean, two, two things I'm watching just like at the moment, so just last week's fresh in my mind. I mean, there's American Rust, which is a kind of a... In, in, I'm watching it week by week because as it, as it pops into my streaming platform and that's a, a, an amazingly strong um, um, crime drama just you know just amazingly strong great depth where it unfolds slowly and you really got to kind of immerse yourself and really trust that the creatives are taking you somewhere with it so that's kind of one example and then I'm, I'm watching another crime drama interrogation which is um, which I hadn't sort of I came to a little late, but this is this is a, a show where obviously if I if I was accessing accessing it on a, on a particular platform, which I'm not at the moment, but if I was, I would be able to choose from all ten episodes which one I want to go in which order. So interrogation has sold the story to me that um, you know if you're digging into a cold case as as a as a, a detective. Uh, you you open the the files in in random chronological order, um, and that's appealing to the kind of citizen sleuth, you know, the the kind of crime aficionados like like me that sort of you know want to kind of really get involved. And it's it's a pity I'm watching it now on a you know a Swedish streaming platform where I I, I, can, I mean I could I can randomly <coughs> pick whichever, but it, it doesn't have that interactive feature of choose your own episode. So I am kind of just following them you know, just in the order that they're popping up. But chronologically, it's all over the place. So, you know, I watched one which was about the original crime and then I've watched one which was about 20 years afterwards trying to, you know, um, appeal. And then I've watched one which was before the crime. So the timeline is chronologically all over the, the you know, everywhere. And it's incredibly well done, you know, just wow. They've really, really thought about a way in which um, that, um, you know, co complex storytelling chronological complexity, moral ambiguity, um, judgments you make around the particular characters and the crime. It's based on a real crime, you know, so it's kind of like, oh, all right. Um, very, very kind of interesting um, agency they've given me um, as an audience member, and I love it, yeah. What is it about crime drama that that fascinates you in that way? I mean, this has been a hugely this is hugely expanded from the podcast, which are then crossed over to the, to the uh, television platforms in different ways. But um, that sort of crime, what is it about the crime drama that, and the, the, and especially the true crime that you find, you know, what do, what do you think that it is that it does that you like to engage with? Hmm. 
Mm, good question. Um, we'd need about four hours for me to unpack all the different elements of it. Some of it, I think, is deeply personal, um, which, you know, uh, go back to old rituals I've grown up with because the crime genre has been around for so long, isn't it? So mm. my genre knowledge of it almost is instinctive. And I was only reflecting not really not long ago, I was having a long conversation with my mum, who's, you know, 81. And of course, she knows everything about crime. (laughs) She watches crime television all the time, all the time, you know. Um, And she was in lockdown in Wales. And, you know, sometimes the conversations I had with her during lockdown were like, well, it's Miss Marple now in the morning, you know, and then I go, what did you do in the afternoon, mum? Oh, well, they were rerunning Inspector Morse, so I wanted to look at that. What did you do in the evening? Well, then they were running Young Morse, <laughs> so I had a look at that, you know, and the whole kind of time flow of her day was different crime genres. And and I was kind of going, well, you know, what, what do I watch? Well, a lot of crime. What do I read? Oh, a lot of crime. Mm. You know, so that genre knowledge, that richness of the genre knowledge, I think, has comes through. And the writers know that, right? The creatives know that. The actors know that. So there's a great sharing of genre knowledge of crime. And you can become very complex in the crime storytelling, um, particularly kind of cold cases, digging back into into kind of quite complicated legal arguments, you know, um, but still, you know, we're we're, we're sort of gripped by it. So I think there's that. And then there's the resolutions. Um, Not all crime drama offer it now. We we do get crime drama where there's there's no resolutions, Um, ongoing cases that aren't resolved, um, cases of injustice in the criminal system that just aren't resolved, but more often than not, particularly in novels um, and in, in, in a lot of crime procedurals will get resolution which we don't get in life right we don't there isn't there's just messy open-ended injustices and annoyances and and hurt which we carry with us throughout our lives whereas in crime there's some sort of resolution we might not like the resolution but there's always some sort of resolution so i think that appeals too in terms of storytelling endings are the thing isn't it in crime and you, you judge a yes. crime writer based on can they pull off the ending? I mean, Lee Child, who is another, in, in, I'm a massive fan of Lee Child's writing. I think he's just a genius. And he, he writes about it, you know, in terms of um, needing to kind of bring the plane into land. And there are very few writers that can actually do that and there's a lot of crime I watch where it's like nah the last two episodes you know what have you done it just they just can't do it it's mm-hmm. such a difficult thing so end crime and endings is the the number one kind of genre expectation you have and you judge the quality of it based on how they can pull off the endings um it takes a great deal of skill yeah it certainly does I think we've all had that experience of loving the first few episodes or first half of a series and then just crying into our tears. Where is this going? What's happened here? You know, this is this is why having one writer instead of a room of, you know, high level people. Do you think in that sense then it's it's again, I know there is a complexity to this and they say everyone brings a different uh personal sort of biographies and things to this but is it is is crime drama and true crime as well is it a is about a sense of reassurance and security it's like it's what you know it it satisfies people's sort of anxieties around those things is that one of the things that it does because I think about the true crime drama which I think is different from you know obviously the fictional drama and fictional drama and as you say the architecture and the writing the structure and that's very uh, technical and kind of creative thing but of course the true crime genre and again I'm not in any way a kind of aficionado of these things but I think about those series that have come out in recent years of real life cases and this person is in prison and, you know, still waiting for their, for them to perhaps uh, for a new trial or whatever it may be. Is that a different dynamic? Do you think he, that the, the, and in that sense, there's, there is a certain sense of kind of horror in a way 
uh, by the sense that you know the kind of you're horrified at, at, at what has happened to these people in these situations in many cases both victims and also sort of injustice is injustice a big part of it do you think yeah, it's a massive part. I think true, true crime is is a is a different beast in itself, a different kind of spin off genre from crime, um, as noir is a different spin off from crime. You know, so so the sort of genre of genealogy is important. True crime, of course, is much more sensationalist, and now I think it appeals to a lot of people with YouTubers or podcasts around true crime because you can deconstruct it. So there's some interesting feminist podcasting deconstructing true crime and its trope on the. The white female victim, you know, um, so uh, all kind of race, race and injustice. So I think injustice becomes a big part of it, particularly true crime and looking back at older crimes and trying to kind of figure out um, in injustice now, um, poor policing, um, you know, um, yeah, tunnel vision <laughs> with the procedural work and and sort of criminal um, criminal cases that end up with with them, terrible injustice um, or, or, or victims are not given a chance to have reparation or, or um, uh, you know, um, a voice. Um, so so I, I think there's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a whole different thing. And, and often there's, there's a, a lack of resolution with true crime. There's just a sense of this, 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 has, this doesn't have... Um, uh, th this has an ending we have to deconstruct because this isn't the ending, you know, just because that person's been in prison for 15 years or that group of people accused of a certain crime have been in prison for 15 years. Actually, you know, we're, we're, we, we need to kind of resurrect that. That's not the ending. That's not the true ending. You see what I mean? What is the true ending? We don't know that. So there's a sense of kind of going back, backwards and forwards in time, if you like, and trying to see a future time where justice can be resolved. I mean, um, and, and I think that's kind of very interesting in itself and slightly different from other types of crime genre where you tend to get a, a resolution of some sort. You might not be happy with it, but there usually is some kind of resolution there. Yeah. I, th I thought it was interesting that the, as far as I'm aware, um, the American show Cops uh, in, in, in the last year in the light of the Black Lives Matter and all the questions in America, uh, questions around policing in America, it was, it was, it, it, it was taken off or it was ended and it's now going back on as I understand it. Um, so it's interesting how, I mean, what do you think about that, those kind of, I don't know, would you call them observational documentary type things? I mean, uh, there are, of course, there are, they cross all sorts of different occupations in different ways. And I'm sure there's a, a Swedish version of cops, I think, in Malmo or something. Um, do you see how how do you see them uh, do, it fitting within this kind of matrix mm. of, of kind mm. of calm the, the genre? Yeah, I mean, I wrote about the the origin story of reality television for a kind of encyclopedia of crime, <laughs> a sort of Oxford encyclopedia of crime, and I wanted to do it because we we forget that reality television started. This is its its origin story and cops is its origin story one one of the landmark early examples of reality television in the 80s and it's deeply problematic you know and it's and it became i wrote about it in the in this piece it, it you know it it was the long it's one of the longest running reality shows ever so the oh, they paused it they haven't mm -hmm. you know killed yeah, it yeah. off right and in the 80s, it was deeply linked to Reaganite politics. It was deeply racist, um, very problematic, morally problematic, um, uh, you know, sort of politics behind cops, <laughs> um, you know, and it, it didn't change. It really didn't change. So um, it would be, you know, just... Uh, one of the <laughs> it would be one of the great moments in the in the shameful history of reality television if if this actually ended um you know in the same way that the batch the bachelor bachelorette has been is is one of the longest running you know um dating uh, reality shows um you know sort of from the t early 2000s it's been going for forever. It's a juggernaut. And fans of it even are kind of bachelor so white, you know, um, campaigning against deeply problematic issues with that brand. So, you know, in, in terms of the kind of history of reality TV, crime from the 80s onwards has 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 done it very with, with a great deal of um 
um, negative connotations, um, really kind of um, worrying. I, 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 I saw recently uh, um, one of my, um, uh, on the, 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 the master's program that I'm running, one of the students is doing a very interesting case about an, a reality show very like Cops in, set in a Chinese city. And as I was reading it, I was going, this could be the 1980s Cops, the same type of political ideological framing of criminals and the police, which is deeply, deeply problematic, pushing a, a particular kind of state um, politics. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and I looked at it and it was just like, well, it never goes away, this, this deeply you know, problematic representation in, 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 in that type of crime reality show. So yeah, um, I wish they had ended that series cops <laughs> it would have been a fitting uh yeah uh, i think kind of com- it would have affirmed many of those those concerns in america about policing wouldn't it it would have, i think it would have said yeah this is a this what's happened has been a turning point but yeah i suppose the nature of those things that it's just a waiting for a moment to claw back into kind of public domain in that way would you say um, that um, the way in which we've talked about streaming and, and then also social media and the way, the, the, the way in which people view and engage and discuss and the circulation then of, of all of these things? I mean, one, for, for, for some writers, uh, some thinkers, then there is... A perception that we have a, a significantly more sort of degraded public sphere today because of this, that the the um, the loss of a sort of institutional authority and um, the 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 level of um, of discussion and and I mean, do 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 you think that do you think that I suppose the question is whether clearly we have a changing landscape media is always changing television is always changing in different ways but is there a sense that it, it has that it it does play a part in um, uh, clearly all sorts of all, all sorts of indicators and evidence for um, public discourse shall we say <laughs> changing and becoming less uh, civil I'm trying to think of the you know appropriate words here. Does do do, do these things, reality TV and, and and other things, do they do they any in any should should we think of them as actually just simply you know reflecting that those processes or or are they part of the of of a, a debasement of culture as as uh, some might argue? Mm. Well, that's a very challenging question to try to answer um but and i think it depends on what type of content we're looking at you know whether it's entertainment content drama content reality content um talk shows you know that i think i think the tone and climate of debate changes depending on kind of what, what those, those that, that type of genre, generic content is doing because it has different communicative forms right so I wouldn't want to kind of generalize across. Nevertheless, um, there's a scholar called Peter Lunt who's writing right now exactly about what you've just said, John. So he's talking about what's happened to civility and he's tracing back in time, um, you know, d- different ways of, of, of having kind of public debate in talk shows, for example, or public debate in, in topical affairs shows where you would invite a live audience in, into it or, or, or shows like Question Time and, and those types of things. Um, and he's definitely tracing it back in time and, and we're, we're definitely seeing a, a climate of incivility, you know, within these particular um, shows, which is produced, you know, so produced incivility. So it isn't, it isn't that the, the live audience coming into those talk shows or into those question and answer kind of public debates um, are just are just doing it because they're they they want to they're they're being kind of orchestrated in to do that and and that relates of course to the different types of um debates we're seeing in social media and other types of places where incivility 
um, is 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 kind of a, a what some of the things that we, you know the people are having to kind of deal with. So that the tones changed for sure, and there's different ways you can read it. Some would say, well, this is more antagonistic, and therefore you know these types of sort of arguments are a useful disruption. There's that kind of um, you know sort of set of theories around disruptive citizenship, which is really interesting and relates to kind of social movements and and, and very important. Um, and we're definitely seeing that introduced into the talk show, for example, much more now um, than it was before. You know, the talk show before in the 90s would have been, well, the disruptive style of that would be Jerry Springer. And then there's a more kind of civil type of talk show or more sensational type of talk show, but still not kind of disruptive and unruly. Whereas now we see a lot of talk shows that are meant to be disruptive and unruly from the get go. And they invite people in. Um, influencers as well as experts as well as politicians who will be disruptive because you know it, it'll they'll trend more with, with sort of social media and and um, it's more kind of entertaining to sort of see it so we're seeing that a lot more and, and it, 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 that could be very positive and then we're also seeing the negative sides of that so incivility and, and kind of hurt and a kind of toxic um, type of sort of um, conversation and, and, and I think that when, when we go back to these, how that's handled in things like talk shows or these question and answer public sessions, that's down to different types of hosting. And I think that's something that we'll see that skill, the importance of hosting, I think is going to be vital. And I think that's an old skill that needs to be kind of re, revitalized and, and rethought. I'm sure producers are, are doing it already, but it feels like hosting is incredibly important then in this type of unruly sort of environment. Yeah. Great. Well, I think we, we've run out of time. Um, thank you very much, Annette, for uh, coming on the podcast today and, and discussing these things. Uh, there's much more we could say. And uh, um, yeah, th thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Great to talk to you. <laughs>